Wolfing down food science. Hey everyone, welcome back to another exciting episode of Wolfing Down Food Science. So today we thought we'd start out with a humility contest because obviously among our three co-hosts, I am the most humble. What do you yep. think, Teresa? Well, I think I'm the most humble. What do you think? I can't. I think it has to go to me because I work on a podcast with two professors. I think I, I should really play the humble card here. What? You, okay. I don't, I don't know. How can you possibly be more humble? I don't get it. Well, listen, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, and I just go right out and ask it oh. to you guys. Well, you know, Paige is not even joining in here. Maybe. <laughs> is it possible she's more humble? What do you think? The irony of this conversation. <laughs> It's overwhelming. <laughs> Paige, Paige is the most humble because she knows her cooking's just that good. She can't, no. okay. she can't even. By all means, ask contribute. my parents. There were a there lot go. of failures. <laughs> that good, you, yeah, you, you just don't have to worry about humility. So why are we having a humility contest um, at the beginning of this episode? Well, uh, we want to talk today about stuff we don't know about nutrition and things that we really need a big dose of humility to understand uh, that we don't know. So there is a list of 10 things that are currently be being considered for the dietary guidelines for 2025. And uh Teresa, do you want to talk more about these dietary guidelines, what they are and how they work? Yes, absolutely. These are a set of guidelines that the government distributes every five years, and it's a progressive, ongoing collection of recommendations that um, are public information and can be provided for advice on what to eat and drink to meet nutrition needs, promote health, and prevent disease. It's made and developed for the intention of a professional audience like policymakers, healthcare providers, and nutrition educators, but it is public information and open for the lay person to read as well. These guidelines are used to inform the labels that we have on food. Is that right? Oh, yes. It is trickle down, <laughs> translated for for public consumption in an everyday kind of sense. Well, and it, it also influences what's produced. So if you are emphasizing that one thing needs to be consumed and one thing needs to be consumed less, it can get to production of food. Mm -hmm. So it has a lot of wide ranging implications. This is basically the holy grail of what our government knows in the current moment of nutrition and food science. Um, but it is an evolving guide, and that's why it's important that every five years um, we collect the things that we don't know and that science is still uh, working to narrow down and get a clearer understanding on um, through these questions. So as a very forward-looking podcast, 
we thought we would talk about the 10 things or 10 things at least uh, among the many questions that are being considered about what we don't know and what we need to know more about in terms of research. So here is a list of 10 things that we need to know more about, that we need to be a bit humble about in terms of our level of knowledge. So here we go. Number one, meal timing. Number two, early food exposures. By the way, we'll come back and talk about what these are. Number three, sources of saturated fat. Sources of sugar is number four. Uh, effects of beverages and then effects of food and beverages together. Uh, parents and children uh, related to diets and development. Diets and disease prevention. Number eight. Number nine is new foods and diets you can live with. And number 10, our favorite, food processing. <laughs> All right. So we have a list of 10 things to unpack and talk about. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, so meal timing. Uh, when do you all when do you all eat your first meal? What's when is your first meal? You know, it depends on my my timing in the morning. So if I have the time to make breakfast, I will. Otherwise, sometimes it gets left in the dust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always. I usually get up and work out and then eat. Um, so it's it's right after exercise for me. But exercise has to come first or I'll get sidelined with other things. <laughs> Otherwise, personal, I won't do it at all. <laughs> in the personal training industry, we always recommend that people eat after their workouts as well. Mm -hmm. um, that's just a little tidbit in the larger scale of things, you know, to make sure that you're replenishing those uh, use energy storages right away so it's not taking from your mu your muscles instead. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just one small portion of a larger scale topic of when do you eat your meals? Is it good to eat dinner very late at night like some cultures do and others divided into three to five meal segments? Well, and then there's been all this discussion about intermittent fasting as a diet, per se, to to have and to utilize in your life in order to manage weight, so, which I think is really interesting. It's not one that I could easily abide by, but. <laughs> yeah, it is. I I had a colleague um, actually at USDA who went on an every other day fast, literally wow. ate one day, fasted the next and just continued with that. Um, and as far as I know, is is still doing that. It was really interesting just to see how that worked. But I think the surprising thing for me was that this person lost maybe 15 pounds and then just, you know, kind of got to a plateau. And uh, I was just expecting this dramatic weight loss. Um, but it was, you know, the initial weight loss and then he adjusted. So it was mm -hmm. very interesting that how, a, you know, adjustable our bodies are yes they do adapt to whatever circumstances we put them in mm -hmm. which can go into effect when we're trying to figure out what times we can recommend for universally everyone to eat 
you know, if we're metabolizing at different rates and different speeds, that answer might not be so clear. Yes, and so the the effects of the effects of this on how we grow, um, what our body composition is, you know, are we at risk of being overweight um, or obese, and can we maintain weight based on these different patterns? These are all questions that are up in the air, and so these are things we don't know, and that's that's why meal timing is is important to consider and important enough to consider that it's been added to that list on the dietary guidelines. So why don't we talk about the second one on the list, and that's early food exposures. Early food exposures. When are the first times that uh, children are exposed to foods and how do they accept foods? So <laughs> you all have any experiences with this? <laughs> I'm laughing at the accept part. There were very few <laughs> acceptable things when my daughter right. was little that we introduced and she liked. There was a handful, but um, and we're adventurous eaters in our house. So we we introduced a lot of foods um, and then, yeah, she ate Kraft mac and cheese for <laughs> about six months on end because she wouldn't eat anything else. <laughs> yes. So it, you know. I, that's an interesting question to me at, from a parental standpoint. I also I'm curious about exposure regarding food allergies because I have a nut allergy and my mom raised me eating tree nuts. But there came a point in my life where I was no longer able to eat those. And now I get anaphylactic shock from that. Oh. So it's it seems to be there's this this point where where I was I stopped being able to eat that? Was it because of overexposure? Was it because of underexposure? Um, those are or some questions. Totally there. different reason, right? Maybe, yes. Maybe some random virus got in there and <laughs> mucked about and, you know, you come out with that result. But um, yeah, I've had friends that have not been able to eat it, be, eat a nut for the same reasons. And then eventually they grow out of it and then they can so right. it, it works both ways. That's, that's yeah. a good question, Teresa, about allergies. Yeah, I have to say, I, I feel, you know, badly for my my sister. We grew up uh, on a small farm and we grew strawberries, among other things. And uh, I remember being out in the field and we would we would just kind of knock the dirt off the strawberry. Just forget <laughs> forget about rinsing or any of these other things. We would just literally be out there. And we were supposed to be picking strawberries, of course, for making <laughs> strawberry jam. But what we actually did is we just found the ripest ones and just ate them all right there. So of course. We, we grew up doing that. And, you know, uh, I guess it's been about 10 years back where uh, my sister started to develop a, a an allergy, a sensitivity to strawberries. And so now, you know, every family gathering, we have to think, OK, wait, you know, we have to leave strawberries out or at least make very sure that we tell my sister there's strawberries in here, um, you know, to avoid to avoid issues. So, yeah, it's very interesting how some of these things we can be exposed, you know, over and over again and no problem. And then all of a sudden uh, there's an issue. So um, thus, I think it <laughs> it uh, it requires some extra research just to <laughs> see about acceptability. So were, were there any foods you all just could not stand? early on and now you're like totally fine with them 
I've been on a personal adventure to expose myself to cucumbers because I've oh. never liked them, but <laughs> I'm adding them to as many things as I can to uh, expose myself to the taste and hopefully start liking taste, it soon. It's a taste. Texture, it's yeah. just such subtly not water that it kind mm. of <laughs> overwhelms me. Okay. It's, it's like, like water, but it's not. <laughs> You're trying to sneak some some flavor in there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I remember three foods growing up, cottage cheese, pears, and lima beans. And I did have repeated exposures. My my mother was insistent that I try these repeatedly. <laughs> and repeatedly, you know, I was sitting, you know, at the supper table for a long time, you know, just trying to get these things down and it did not work um and now you know all of those foods are fine i just i don't know what it was about them but they were not very acceptable even with repeated exposure so Mm -hmm. um well and i think sometimes we have a physical reaction to something our gi tract isn't super happy with it and so we have a physical discomfort associated with a particular food. And if you repeatedly expose somebody to something that gives them discomfort, eventually they're going to say, well, I don't particularly like that food. Right, right. And they might not <laughs> associate the two things together. But there is that that physical response that their body is giving them. So there's lots of reasons why you might not like something, including how early you are exposed to a variety of different foods. Well, well, number three, I'm I'm actually pretty pretty excited about this one. Number three mm-hmm. is is looking at sources of saturated fat and how they affect our health. Um, and just refresh my memory. What is a really 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 delicious source of saturated fat? I just <laughs> it's right there. I can't quite place it churn the butter <laughs> butter's a really good one butter's cheese. a really good and one maybe chocolate oh that's the first thing that came to my mind i was just like <laughs> yes chocolate <laughs> I, now i like butter but i love chocolate yes <laughs> butter and chocolate Okay. Now we got brownies. Yes. (laughs) Two great tastes that taste great together. So, so the question, you know, the question for the 2025 guidelines is really about, is there an effect of source? Is it that all saturated fats might increase risk of cardiovascular disease or is it the source of those saturated fats, um, perhaps the the fat itself or the the food that it's in, that affects the risk. Uh, you know, where chocolate is concerned, certainly that seems to, thankfully, um, not have a, a dramatic increase in risk, especially if you're talking about the dark chocolates and lower sugar uh, type chocolates. So, so that is greatly appreciated. Uh-huh. See, yeah. and now you, you've gone to number four, sources of sugar. Ooh, sources <laughs> of sugar. Okay. All right. Number four. Hating on the sugar. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite molecules. Okay. 
And we so, need sugar readily accessible for our proper brain function and for the fastest available energy, but it's the amount and the timing that we eat this sugar that is critical. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things that that I found really interesting was looking at studies where they were trying to understand how athletes recover. And one of the things that was being studied was the beneficial effects of chocolate milk on recovery. And here's something that has quite a bit of sugar, but if you're consuming it after a bout of exercise, it appears to be quite beneficial. So I'm not sure that you get the same benefits if there was no exercise involved. Um, so so it makes me want to exercise a lot because I like chocolate milk. Yeah, <laughs> chocolate milk. That's right. Yes. Oh, boy. <laughs> and then that flows right into beverages. Yeah, the you question. get that? It flows into, oh, sorry, sorry. I, yes. I got it. I <laughs> nice one, Paige. Yes. <laughs> Every once in a while, I get in a dad joke. Yes. We definitely. Definitely need to make this podcast more punny for sure. <laughs> so the question is, what kind of beverages are we talking about? Um, and there is a big list that's being considered. So the question is related to, uh, of course, the effects on on health, on obesity, on type two diabetes, but um, just your pav- patterns of beverage consumption. Uh, are you consuming dairy? Are you consuming dairy alternatives? Are you consuming 100% juice, low or no calorie uh, type of beverages, sugar sweetened, coffee, tea, and water, um, right? So all of those are being considered as like, how do these affect your health? And my mind also goes to alcoholic beverages and how that affects our health as well. I get a lot of people asking me um, if alcohol is uh, an appropriate source of calories um, when <laughs> when logging their food and whatnot. And I sometimes don't know what to say um, because it does digest very differently in our body and affects everyone very differently, not to mention just the aftermath effects of, of overconsumption of alcohol. Uh, that's a really good point. Um, and I, I guess... I'm I'm looking at this and I don't see alcohol listed under beverages. So I, I think that's oh. really uh, that's that's a really fantastic point. It's not there. Actually, since we're on this topic of dietary guidelines, there's there is a place for public comment. So this might be one of the things that could be add, added to that list of beverages um, and ask the question, what is the effect of of alcohol consumption on um all of these health-related outcomes, including uh, obesity or weight loss or type 2 diabetes, all of these different outcomes. So, yes. uh, so Teresa, I think you came up with a really great point. <laughs> I well, do think it's interesting there that they are they mention low and no calorie sweetened beverages. Mm-hmm. Um, right. They're, real, they're covering all kinds of different bases on that, and not just from a caloric standpoint, but the low and no calorie. There has been research that has been done indicating it might have some effects on metabolism, um, even though it's not giving you a high calorie content. So that goes into artificial sweeteners. If that is healthy, if it's not healthy, does it affect our health? 
And there's been a lot of cumulative research gathered. So some meta-analyses find that it is not harmful to health. But of course, that just is an accumulation of all the different articles that say, yes, it is harmful and no, it is not. Um, At the end of the day, it affects everyone uniquely. Yeah. Yeah, I got to say, for me, I, you know, for me, primarily, it's just it's just the flavor, you know, I'm I'm or the taste. I'm I'm very accustomed to the taste of real sugar. Mm-hmm. And I would rather have just something with real sugar and consume it less often um, than I would than I would have something with uh, with uh, artificial sweetener just because it, it has a it may be this acceptability thing. You know, I just haven't had as much exposure to it. And therefore, to me, it's not as uh, not as interesting. So I would rather have sugar sweetened beverage or water or, of course, coffee, um, mm. you know, with no sugar. All the coffee. All the coffee. <laughs> all the coffee. So, well, we've gotten halfway through our list. So we're we're up to number five. It looks like we're going to need another episode to get through this list of 10 things that we don't know and so much we don't know <laughs> there's a lot of things that we don't know so many things to make us feel humble so, <laughs> <laughs> so we we hope that this um this short overview of the 10 things that we don't know and uh, the upcoming episode to complete this 10 things that we don't know has made you feel a little bit more humble as well. We don't know everything <laughs> of how to take care of our body and neither should you. There's always room to learn more things. If you'd like to find out more about our podcast, Wolfing Down Food Science, please check us out at NCSU's Food Bioprocessing and Nutrition Science website, where you can find our show notes, reference links, and more. You can find out more about NC State, our department, and FS201, the amazing course that has brought us all together, on our website as well. Please don't forget to subscribe to Wolfing Down Food Science wherever you stream your podcasts like Spotify and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in to Wolfing Down Food Science. See you next time.